Again, uh, we will be returning to our text in Colossians chapter 4. We've got a couple more weeks left in this book, and uh, we will be into the holidays. Looking forward to that, and uh, we'll do some topical things uh, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then look to move into another book after the first of the year. So we're in Colossians chapter 4. We left off in verse, after verse 1, and you remember Paul was teaching about family relationships in the household. And now, he turns us to the topic of prayer. Paul magnifies the importance of prayer. Uh, He describes some of our desirable attitudes that we should have while praying. Uh, He even informs us in this text what his favorite topic of prayer is. And since uh, it's founding at Pentecost, the church has been loyally devoted to prayer. It's one of the four pillars. We find in Acts chapter 242, that uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So, Port St. Lucie Bible Church is devoted to prayer. A lot of you uh, joined this past Wednesday when we had prayer life groups again at homes and uh, were able to share that intimacy of prayer in the household. And... uh, There are just so many bonds that are formed when a church will come together and pray for one another's burdens and share them and minister to one another. So prayer is very important. With that said, there's no real formal equation to prayer. In fact, I believe it is possible that the main reason we don't find an equation in Scripture is so that it doesn't become too formulaic as we do it. Of course, we know that Jesus prescribed a prayer in Matthew chapter 6, which we know now as the Lord's Prayer. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uh, had a thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times to be removed from him, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And uh, he dropped it. He said, okay, prayed three times and done. It's also interesting that Jesus, when he was in the garden praying before his crucifixion, asked three times that that cup would pass from him, and uh, then he was arrested. Then we also find in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make, and with thanksgiving let your requests be, no, be made known to God. So really anything that causes you to be anxious, you can lift before the Lord, and you can know that he hears you and that he loves you. So as far as topics of prayer, really anything goes. Um, Anything that we can pray within God's will and within scriptural parameters is up for prayer. But we find in this text today that there are some priorities in prayer that are repeated throughout scripture. We need to take note of them. Looking in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer. To devote means to occupy yourself with prayer, to be persistent in prayer. A person who's devoted to prayer is tenacious. It's the place that they go when there's time of need. It's not a safety net after all else fails. Prayer is where we go when there's a concern, when there's a problem. A person who's devoted to prayer turns to prayer first when they face a decision or concern. So in verse 2, we see, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 
We are alert. Some translations say watchful. We're watchful for two things. One, it says, is an opportunity for prayer. The other is an answer to prayer. Opportunity for prayer is everywhere. But we need to be spiritually alert for it. I have a quick illustration. There was a season in North Dakota while I was doing ministry there at the Capitol. You know, there's the long interim between sessions where the legislators go to their careers again. They return home. And uh, they may be a farmer or a rancher or a school teacher or a doctor. And there gets to be slow times at the Capitol. So I was in a period of trying to decide uh, whether I was going to transform this into a tent-making ministry of some kind or to continue to uh, add other types of uh, ministry functions in the mission that I was involved with. And I, for a season, hauled crude oil out in the oil field in western North Dakota. Very flexible employment. They need people so badly you can come and go as you need to go. My job was to drive to a well site, load up 200 barrels of crude oil, and then take it either to a pipeline or to a rail yard. These sites, you can imagine, in western North Dakota are very remote. Uh, They're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there were times when I'd run into other men out on these sites uh, on occasion, and I'd carry extra Bibles with me in the truck and gospel tracts and audio CDs of preachers that could um, be passed out to people. And on one occasion, when I pulled into a well, there was another truck driver uh, that was loading salt water into his truck. It's saltwater brine. It's a byproduct of an oil well that needs to be disposed of. So I wasn't only prayerfully alert. When I pulled in and saw him there, I was locked onto him like the radar of an F-22 Raptor. I started praying. I'm like, Lord, we're in the middle of nowhere. Two men, two trucks, open up a door to the gospel. I knew I had about 45 minutes to work with him because uh, he was just hooking up his hoses. So I backed in my rig and I was on the other end where the oil was and hooked up my hoses. And then uh, I had to do a few tests first. When you're hauling crude oil, you have to do a test of each tank before you unload it and do uh, the temperature, specific gravity, and... uh, You need to check sediment in it and other things. So it's about 10 minutes I had to test that. And then I had about 15 minutes from that point before I had to do my next set of checks. So I went down and I I began to talk to this man. He was at the front of his truck. And he had hit a a small animal the night before. Not that small. It was big enough to do some damage to his fender in the front of his truck. And I shook his hand. was polite. Looked over what he had there. And and, I went back to my truck and got a few tools out and stitched up a few pieces so they wouldn't fall off. And, and uh, then we looked, I had a big uh, pusher bar in the front of the truck I was driving, so he was looking that over, thinking about cost and other things to prevent this from happening to his truck again. And then I had to go up and do my other tests. You walk up this set of ladders to go to a 20-foot tall tank, and uh, went up there to get my supplies and things. And I'm like, Lord, I've made a personal connection with this man. I was polite. I have cannot leave here without sharing the gospel with him. So I continued to pray. And I prayed, Lord, that man is not going to leave this well site without hearing about Jesus Christ. Almost that very moment, I hear a voice call up from below, about 20 feet down. And it said, hey, John, can I ask you a question? 
I looked down. I'm like, well, of course. He said, is there any chance you're a Christian? I said, yeah, I am. I'll be down there in a minute. You can't tell me that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't ordain events. Um, I did not mention to him uh, that I was a Christian. There was no sign. I was not wearing any necklace or anything that would have uh, referred to me being a Christian. I was simply polite while we were talking to him, and God was working on his heart. So I reached into my truck and grabbed a Bible and some gospel literature and a CD that had an Adrian Rogers message on it I wanted to give to him. And I got back over there. I listened to him talk about him and his wife, how lonely they were in the oil field. Now, they had been befriended by a Mormon group that was giving them uh, a lot of pressure to join Mormonism. And there are a lot of Mormons out in the oil fields in western North Dakota, Idaho, through that uh, region. It's rugged work, but uh, they will go out to earn the money. It's good paying stuff. So he had been befriended by a bunch of these, and he said uh, they weren't feeling comfortable about it. And he said that uh, my wife and I have been praying the last few days and think maybe we need to reconsider Jesus Christ in church. Now God put me at that oil well at that time to talk to him about Jesus. Here you have a Dallas Seminary graduate, a missionary to the state capitol, slash oil truck driver. God put me right there. And uh, I was able to explain to him more fully who Jesus Christ was. I don't believe at that point he was probably a believer. He was definitely being worked on, was able to share some literature with him that could help him through that, prayed with him, was able to share some problems with Mormon doctrine, and uh, he got in his truck and down the road he went. So God answers prayer. This was a result of an evangelistic prayer. Now we all need to be alert for types of prayer, uh, uh, health prayer, Praying for health, financial situations, personal struggles, etc. We need to be constantly assessing our situation for opportunities. We need to be alert to talk about Christ. So being alert is our first priority. But this text also says that we need to have an attitude of gratitude. It says, be thankful. Do you think when I pulled away from that well site after doing that prayer and seeing that work that I was thankful? God had done a wonderful thing there. No way I could have orchestrated that. I was celebrating. He he utilized me because I was alert. And I was thankful for it. But we aren't only alert for these opportunities. We're instructed to be alert to God's answered prayer. So priority two in verse two is be thankful. Your alertness ought to reveal to you when God answers your prayers. It should be resulting in praise of him, whether someone receives physical healing or comes to know Christ or whatever it may be, we ought to be alert to the fact that we've been praying for that. We ought to know what we've been praying for so we can thank God when it gets answered. These principles would suggest that our prayers need to be more specific, possibly. How do you know if a prayer is answered if you don't remember what you've prayed. If you're praying very general and just for concerns that are superficial, you don't remember day to day, how do we know when God answers them? How do you share your praise for Him then if you don't know that your prayers are answered specifically? 
You want to be able to share your praise to God that your prayers have been answered. For that, we need to be thankful. We need to know what we're doing. We need to be alert. We need to know why we're praying. So our priorities in prayer are to be alert for opportunities and to be thankful when God answers them. We find another priority in verse 3. This would be that prayers are evangelistic in scope. Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him and his team back in Rome. He says, Praying at the same time for us is well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That is the gospel. For which I have been imprisoned, Paul says, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. So an open door to the gospel was a typical prayer request for Paul. Take a moment and think to yourself. Did Paul have other personal prayer needs? He was in prison. Interesting, he doesn't ask about that. He doesn't ask to be released from prison, at least not in writing. That's how this was delivered to Colossae, was through writing. Also, we know that um, Paul suffered from what we knew as a thorn in the flesh. He had physical issues. We know from all the persecutions he took as a Christian missionary, he was stoned in Lystra. He went through all kinds of resistance and abuse through his his ministry. So we would have to expect that he had physical issues. He doesn't ask about them. We learn in verse 14 later on that Luke is with him. The good doctor Luke, that is. So as a missionary doctor, we can expect that Luke, along with Paul, bandaged up, bandaged up a lot of sick people. Paul didn't ask for prayer for those things. Now, I, I want to make clear here, I do think that Paul probably, in his small group, asked for prayer for those things. In his group in Rome... I'm sure that he raised up all those physical concerns. Let all of your cares, don't be anxious, let all your cares be lifted to the Lord. So I'm certain that he followed what he wrote. But his priority, if he was going to leave one thing with Colossae that he was concerned about, it was about that a door would open to the gospel. So the apostle's prayer priority was the gospel. He wanted God to provide open doors to proclaim Christ. This wasn't only for him, but he says in verse 3, he hopes a door will open to us so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. At this time, Paul had a number of associates with him in Rome, so he expected that each and every one of them would receive an opportunity to the gospel. He wasn't just talking about himself. He wasn't a one-man band. He was asking for opportunities for all of them to be able to witness then it's noteworthy that he singles himself out in this verse at the end. He says, as pertaining to his own personal occasions to proclaim the gospel as they materialize, he asks for their prayers and says, he hopes that I make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. It's very possible that Paul had some kind of speech impediment. We don't know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he acknowledges that he was not a man of eloquent or superior speech. So he wasn't a perfect orator. He relied instead on the power of God's word to cause transformation in people's hearts. 
don't know if many of you are familiar with uh, Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. He is a great preacher of the 1800s in England, possibly the greatest modern preacher of that day. And Spurgeon uh, came to Christ in an interesting way. He was going out in a snowstorm. He was going to a meeting. And it got so bad that he had to divert into a small Methodist chapel. And uh, it is said that he went in, sat down to get warm, and there was a man at the pulpit with just a few people there. That's a very small number. It doesn't say how many. But there were just a few people. And this man that was speaking was fun. He wasn't sweet-sounding. But he was preaching through Isaiah 45. That is, look unto me and be ye saved, for I am God and there is none else. That was his text. Well, he made it through it. And Spurgeon gave his life to Christ that night. Became one of the greatest preachers out of some of the poorest preaching in the 1800s. So perhaps you are hesitant to ask God for an open door. Maybe you are hesitant to witness because you don't think you're skilled enough to articulate the gospel. Neither was Paul. God doesn't require articulate preachers. He just asks for witnesses. One thing I think that we fall into in our modern era is we we have a lot of modern audio and video and uh, we see these great preachers and we compare ourselves to them. We'll listen to a guy like Chuck Swindoll on the radio and uh, hear how wonderful and, and, and what a great presentation he has. And we say, well, I could never preach like that. And then we uh, look to uh, these very bright individuals like John MacArthur, goes and preaches doctrine out of the Bible in ways that most can't. And we say, I could never defend a doctrine like that. You don't have to. The power's in God's word. You know who Jesus is. You know that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. And God will strengthen you when you need to witness. So Paul puts his prayer request to the Colossae on a priority of winning souls. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes this farewell to the church in Thessalonica. It says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Why does Paul invite all these churches in these letters to pray for open doors to the gospel? Because he wants their hearts to also be praying for open doors to the gospel. Prayer is intended to change us and our actions. It's a spiritual mechanism for realigning our behavior to God's will. There's there's a side note we need to take here, and that is we need to address the incorrect assumption that somehow when we pray that we're empowering God to work. God's not sitting up in heaven with his hands tied, unable to do anything until we get enough people praying together in order to loose him. We don't lose his power. Prayer is about us changing to God's will. It's about realigning our desires to his desires. Then he uses us. God created the entire universe by speaking it into existence. 
He's not hampered from opening a door to the gospel in Rome because of what some people in Colossae might decide to pray or what might not decide to pray. What he wants them to do is to join in and ask for same opportunities for themselves. Paul is modeling for them evangelistic prayer. He wanted their prayer. He wanted them to rejoice when the news came that people were coming to Christ, that the church was growing, and he wanted them to know that they had a part in that. Evangelism is God's will. That's what he wants us to do. That's praying within God's will. Colossae and you and I need to align ourselves to God. When we pray, it's all about adjusting our lives to the will of God. This is going to be a little controversial. But we spread prayer lists all over the place. We ask everyone we know to pray. We invite people to join us in prayer, which is good. That is what we should do. But we think somehow that the number of people that we get to pray is the power by which God works. God is all-powerful. He's not a reflector of our prayer. We don't send up a beam of prayer to Him and Him redirect it to another location. God can make all things happen. In the modern age, we can get thousands of people praying for us, and that's good. But God isn't any more or less affected by modern computer systems spreading the news of a prayer than He was back in Elijah's day when everything had to travel by letter or by horse or by foot. Or by mouth. The numbers aren't as important for him as it is for us. If we have 50 people praying on a prayer list, it's not twice as efficacious for God as 25 people. What it does do is it gives twice as many people the opportunity to respond and to care for that person's need and to reach out in the name of Christ. Here's the problem. That's why I brought this up. If we come down with an illness or a problem, which each of us eventually will, and we think, well, you know, I just need to get a whole bunch of people praying. I need to get a thousand people on the prayer list. Unfortunately, sometimes I think we forget to get on our own knees and pray ourselves to ask what God is doing through our illness. Through our sickness, we're like, instead of getting down on our knees, it's possible to just say, well, let's just get a bunch of people together to pray. And maybe God then will be loosed enough power to heal me. It's better to first ask God, what are you teaching me through this? Sometimes we don't know at all. Job didn't know at all what was going on. We learned from that. It was a situation, it was a spiritual situation. It had nothing to do with Job's sin. Had nothing to do with circumstances he was in it was all beyond his reach yet it caused him to seek out God it's caused him to reach out to God and to try to understand God so God does want us to have big prayer chains he wants us to be able to share each other's burdens he wants us to know when someone is in need more importantly when that prayer is answered as it was with Joanne Bittner through her heart surgery he wants us to praise him 
when he answers and uses his power to make that go perfectly. So to go, together we come through prayer and we praise God. He is not a, a beneficiary of our prayer power. So we've seen that Paul prioritizes being alert in prayer. He's thankful, to the, uh, he's thankful for answered prayer. And evangelism is real high on his prayer list. Since spreading the word is so high on Paul's prayer list of priorities, we find him now next giving practical instruction on this very same topic of evangelism in verse 5. We find him say, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. Paul invites them likewise to seek open doors of the gospel. The wisdom here that we see uh, needed in this context doesn't mean academic learning. It would be better to understand this as skill of discernment, even cleverness. When you sense an opportunity to dialogue with someone about Jesus Christ, it can almost become like a friendly or polite game of chess. Through your words, you make a move, then you wait for a response. Your goal is not to overpower, humiliate, or conquer them. Believers are not our opponent. Unbelievers are not our opponents. There are opportunities. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember I brought up First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, which says, "Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to make a defense of your faith for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence." We're to be gentle and reverent when we defend our faith. People enjoy gentleness and reverence. Evangelism isn't about clubbing someone to death with your dogmatisms. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. In some locations in the Bible, salt represents a preservative. It's not here. Salt in this context is a seasoning Seasoning is used to make something taste better. I know Lee Pachel over there has done a lot of uh, cooking. He's done chef work. Bruce Travis as well. Probably several here have worked as a chef of some sort. Lee, when you try to make a dish, you like to make it appetizing, right? You like to season it to be appetizing. I know you do. Yes, it's salt that brings out the flavor. Great point. He wants them to enjoy what he's prepared. This is how we do evangelism. We reason with people from the scripture. We respect the individuals we talk to. Then we give them a taste of what we have. Our hope is that they'll come back for another bite. When they come back for that second bite, what does our text tell us to do? It says, you'll know how to respond to each person. Once again, we'll know how to respond. We'll be able to maintain a spiritual dialogue with them. When Paul took a combative posture, it was more often against those who were uh, false apostles, severely backslidden people, or those who were just indignant. Paul didn't expect outsiders, unbelievers, to understand Christian doctrine. He didn't expect them to get it without being told, respectfully. He used gentleness and reverence 
in an attempt to make the gospel alluring to the palate. We find, find Paul demonstrating this in Athens, in Mars Hill, the Areopagus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17, and I'm starting reading here from verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining your objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul didn't insult them and call them ignorant. All he did is say that he had the ability to reveal to them what they had already admitted to themselves they were ignorant and worshiping. So he says, I can reveal to you that which you're ignorant of. So he continues by telling them about the Lord um, who had made the world. He even quotes one of their own, un, uh, own prophet, or poets, excuse me, it says. And then in verse 30, he picks up again and he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's us too. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. Now when the people had heard this resurrection from the dead, some began to sneer, it says, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of the presence, but some men joined Paul and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was one of the officials in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He believed, it says, a woman named Damaris and others with them. So people, through his dialogue, were coming to faith because he was engaging them. He was having his uh, dialogue seasoned with salt. He was reverent. He was gentle. He was respectful. He didn't have to win an argument in order for God to draw people to faith. More often than not, people are emotionally exposed to gentleness and reverence. I think we all can understand that. If someone comes to us with a combative posture, usually we're going to respond by bowing up. But if someone comes gentle and reverent and uh, caring or concerned, um, a lot of times we'll respond accordingly. This doesn't mean that we would witness in any way that would suggest that we don't believe what we're telling them or that we don't, aren't convicted or convinced or 100% sure. No, it means that we're respectful in our witness. And that can make even the most difficult individual come back for another tasty bite. This is the type of demeanor that can touch the hardest of hearts. I don't know if you all know who Penn Gillette is. There is a hard heart. He's a comedian. He is a magician. He uh, has been on a lot of television shows. You'll probably recognize him. Uh, it is in a great video. I got a five-minute four-minute video here of him. And he is an atheist, uh, very proud of that fact. He is very uh, insulting of Christians, and uh, especially in his comedy, he's one of these who gets a kick out of mocking Christians. And uh, you'll be able to tell by the short video that 
he doesn't even know whether the Psalms are part of the New Testament or Old Testament or what it is. He really doesn't know what we believe. He asserts by mocking that he knows. But he had a gentleman that approached him reverent and with gentleness and with honesty. And let's watch. about this? Uh, I've been home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's uh, not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And... Uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice insane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible and I've always said you know that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize I don't respect that at all if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that uh, well it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. 
And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. Uh, well, he said that one good guy doesn't change everything. I know one good guy who did. His name is Jesus Christ. And uh, thank God that he's called us here to faith, to trust in him, to know that our sins are forgiven through his blood. And uh, I know there's a bunch of other good guys out here that uh, he has working for him. So praise the Lord. Remain alert. Trust in the Lord. Pray to him. Praise him when he answers. Should we close in prayer? Lord, Thank you for this text today reminding us to, to be focused on prayer that we, Lord, uh, recognize where you're working and how you're working and why you're working, Lord, to bring glory to your Son. Lord, I pray that we'd be obedient to that and, Lord, offer our prayers to you as we are now. And when we see you work, Lord, recognize it. Recognize your power. Recognize your mercy your love, Lord God. I pray for Penn Jillette. Uh, Lord, I don't really know much about him or what happened after this event. But uh, Lord, he's not beyond your reach. So many like him that live down our street and other places, Lord, uh, that we come into contact with. Uh, we pray for opportunities. We pray here now, according to your word, for a door to the gospel. Lord, help us to uh, be sensitive, alert, and obedient servants to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.